The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today is fellow to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, Professor William A. Tiller of Stanford University's Department of Material Science, spent 34 years in academia after nine years as an advisory physicist with the Westinghouse Research Laboratories. He's published over 250 conventional scientific papers, three books and several patents. In parallel, for over 30 years, he has been avocationally pursuing serious experimental and theoretical study of the field of psychoenergetics, which will very likely become an integral part of tomorrow's physics. In this new area, he has published an additional 100 scientific papers and four seminal books. Professor Tiller, welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a great privilege to have you here sharing your valuable time with me. We've had some conversations prior to the program, and they've been fascinating, and obviously i researched the subjects as much as I can, and I've had the honor of joining your good friend, Dr. Klaus Heinemann, and had other wonderful individuals like Mihor Ledwith. Yes. I'd like to start off by charting, and I realize I think we've already agreed that this is going to take two or three programs, so we may as well take this slowly and, and, and carefully. Super. I'd like to go back to your early days to begin with. Sure. Back to perhaps your childhood days and your evolution, perhaps up to your late teens seeing where you were then and how you were evolving into your adult period. It's an interesting uh, step. I grew up in a family with English parents, had a brother and a sister, learned to work early in life because we were not well-to-do, not dirt poor, but we were probably lower middle class, is the way one would call it. My first remembrance of that aspect was in working with my brother cutting grass for weekend money. And he would never let me push the lawnmower. I had to use the clippers. And I, I wasn't particularly happy about that. At nine, I was, had earned enough I could buy his bicycle so he could buy a new one, a racer. And with that bicycle, I got a job delivering fish and chips in Toronto. That's, that's music to my heart. Yes. <laughs> and uh, had that job for three years while I was in school. And uh, I guess I left that job about 12 or 13. Uh, I was tall. I liked sports and girls in that order. Although I was a reasonable student, I didn't really work very hard at it. My father liked to ask me mental arithmetic games, and I enjoyed them, and they were easy, and they were fun. He also taught me how to go fishing with him. I enjoyed that. I worked through high school. One of the memorable jobs, I guess it was the year before my senior year and I had a job after school on Saturdays working at a an auto wreckers where I would tear apart cars um, and store away the parts uh, making notations 
and would get parts when people came in to buy parts. And I was up to my elbows in grease kind of things. And I would ride my bicycle. I had the racer by that time. My brother had moved on to other things. And uh, I would ride at home. Uh, and when I went home, I would first wash my hands and my arms in gasoline. And then I would wash it with soap and water. And after having dinner, I would put on a suit of tails and bow tie and such and go out to my second job in the evening, which was at Eaton's Auditorium, where people like Yasha Heifetz and other stellar individuals would sing, play, dance. And that was very memorable. I should put in here somewhere. I met a, a man, a teacher, who made me want to learn. He was an English teacher and also taught French, although I didn't take French from him. But he taught English literature and English grammar. Uh, and I loved his performances with the English literature. And lo and behold, I became a poet. This was a turning, major turning point in my life. I was about 15 at the time and wrote poetry. I loved it. And by, by the time I got to my senior year, I was the top of the class, what, what, which was what, top of the school. What were you reading in those days? Were you reading Shakespeare, Canterbury was, Tales, Wordsworth? You name it. I was reading all of it. And uh, he was acting out Shakespeare, generally. It was a time where sort of everything I touched turned to gold. So I began to want to learn, reflecting on it in part because I wanted to justify his faith in me. And by the time I got to my senior year, uh, I wanted to go to university. I was the only one in my family that would have gone. And I had to think about whether I wanted to go into literature and be a writer or to go into science, because I was good in science and math. I decided to go in science and math because I thought if I became a writer, I could never be a scientist. But if I became a scientist, maybe one day I could be a writer uh, and would have something to say. And I thought it was my idea at the time. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But in any event, that's, that's what happened. I married my, we'll call it childhood sweetheart, at least from the age, although I met her earlier, we didn't really connect until I think she was 18 and I was 19. Now up to this point, clearly your father was an extremely important part of your life. My father, um, this was the Depression times. My dad had been out of work for four years. He'd been in the First World War and had machine gun bullets in his legs. So he had to live near a hospital, a veterans hospital. Um, he was a very quiet man. My mother was the dynamo in the family. She could have run General Motors with one hand tied behind her back. <laughs> She brought us through the Depression years by finding where to buy cracked eggs and where to buy day-old bread and to put together nourishing meals for the three of us. And I was the baby of the family, so she learned a lot with my brother, who was the oldest. He wasn't particularly happy with that aspect. My sister was in the middle. Uh, by the time my mother turned to me, I was the baby, and, and I didn't get quite as harsh a treatment, I suppose. So, so everything had been learned by that stage? Uh, I'm, this is my presumption. In any event, we all struggled with mother, because without her looking back, we wouldn't have survived. Um, so she did what she needed to do. She was five foot and a quarter inch tall. She really relished that quarter inch. And uh, she was a, what they would call, she was a pistol. Uh, and I came to 
really appreciate her in my 30s and 40s, looking backwards. And so I don't mean to leave my father out because he was a very quiet man and, and a wise man and a kindly man. But much, in order to eventually get a job to feed the family, he had to work in the evenings. And by the time he got home from work, I was in bed. In your choice of career going between the arts and science, any participation in that choice, in that Not selection? Not particularly, no. No, basically he... Uh, I think he wanted me to do what I thought it was right to do for me. And I think it was my mother that had the aspirations for particular careers for her children, especially the boys. But Dad was there to participate when needed. Were you the chosen one to travel into academia rather than your... No, it was it was my choice. I was the chosen one. Basically, we went to uh, a school called Central Tech in Toronto High School, and that turned out largely people that went into the trades. There was one branch which went towards academia, and that was the branch I eventually chose because it was the only branch that led to the university. This was, uh, when would this have been? What, what this would year? Be, this would be, uh, I entered university in 1948. So the previous five years, I was at, this was a five-year high school. And so the, the last three years were into the academic, uh, taking French uh, as well as English, of course, etc. But basically the first two years, um, I had all the training of, of mechanical drawing and things of that nature and machine shop and woodwork and and forge, actually. Very different time. Yes. Beyond knowing yourself in yourself that you wish to proceed into the scientific arena, were there any external pressures mm -hmm. such as the ending of the war years or possibly greater things yes. that you were looking at? Certainly my brother went into the Canadian Navy and he was torpedoed in the English Channel and so he developed pleurisy but he was out of the house for basically five years, more than five years because he was in hospital for several years. So uh, that was the flowering time, but I don't think it was because Jim was absent, although he was a dominant factor in our household. But our household, the idea was that we would leave high school at the fourth year and go out into industry somewhere. Um, and I wanted to do other than that. And this English teacher, a uh, man by the name of Mr. John Dodd, truly a wonderful man. Um, he spoke with my parents and uh, they said, well, they could afford to have me live at home and they could feed me, but I'd have to find the money to get into university and all the extras elsewhere. Um, and he helped me get a scholarship, which combination I earned, but uh, without his help, I don't think I would have gotten it. And that was the way I got into uh, engineering physics. I, I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I figured if I studied the most difficult subject, then I would be better served when I finally chose what I wanted to do. And so basically I would ride my bicycle seven miles to the University of Toronto every day from home and in bicycles back every afternoon. Um, and uh, that's sort of how it developed. I was heading towards uh, nuclear physics, a uh, big thing in those days. And, uh, and in the summertime and during the, the uh, academic year, uh, I had to go one night a week. I, I 
developed something called the United Naval Training Division. I joined that. It was with the Navy, because there was that heritage in my family, even to my grandfather, who was a sea captain. Um, basically, I became a lieutenant in the Canadian Navy after I graduated from college. This was a reserve it, it was occupation? A re it was a reserve occupation. Uh, I learned from that experience that, uh, well, I, I joined the track team for the Canadian Navy, but I learned that if there ever was a war, they would slap me into a laboratory so quickly I'd never go to sea anyway. And so I just got my commission and I resigned. What were your thoughts then about war? My thoughts, uh, I don't think I, well, I had some deep thoughts in my poetry uh, because a bit of that definitely was about war. Um, Did it scare you, the thought of war, if you read the poetry yeah. of uh, Siegfried Sassoon or mm -hmm. Robert Brooks? Is, is that something that would turn anybody off uh, back in those days from wanting yeah. to become involved and enlisted into the war? I wasn't afraid. I already sort of knew that we were much more than this biological tissue that we wear. I call it the bio-body suit that we put on when we are born and take off when we leave this plane of reality. I didn't make a big thing of it, but it just didn't feel as if it was in the cards. The times when I was in that mood, back in the early days when I wrote poetry, I thought I had to get way down I, emotionally in order to write poetry. I learned that wasn't true, but but in the early days I felt that way. You just uh, cited uh, some profound thoughts that clearly evolved later in life. Yes. So clearly you were already at this stage yes. thinking very clearly, very clearly and very differently to others around you. Yes, and it was in my poetry as well. And I've looked back at some of it and thought, oh, that's pretty good even today, kind of thing. I've forgotten most of it, but, but every once in a while I pull it out and look at it. The thing that was most difficult for me, I gave, I gave up the poetry uh, in my 20s because I found it gave me too much power over people, the words, the flow of the words, um, and I didn't feel wise enough and they had seemed to have expectations of me that I didn't intend. Do you mean in terms of emotional manipulation or they're simply they're not being able to grasp the intellectual no, delivery? It was, it was more, I would say, it was more the emotional side of things, especially for uh, females. Um, that was clearly I, a, a, I, a great winner with the ladies. Yes, it was a great winner with the <laughs> ladies, exactly. But the the issue is I realized that they took meaning from it that I did not intend, and I didn't want to hurt anyone. So I decided that I'd put it aside until uh, I could be more mature and understand these things better. Did you recontinue the poetry in later life? Not yet, but, you know, I've still got a couple of decades left. I'm only 80. <laughs> <laughs> you you go into travel into academia and and I hope my notes are right we're, we're talking now 1952 we're talking engineering physics yes are you getting involved in the nuclear debates in, in that nuclear activity that was so profound then um, not much um, I didn't, I didn't, well, there are two things that are interesting in this. I kept getting contacted by various doctors that many thought were quacks working with some kind of odd machine or instrument who asked if I would tell them what was going on with this. And I obviously had a curiosity about these sorts of things back then. In but fact, even... Uh, Shortly after being married to Jean, uh, my wife, um, another friend and his wife, we would get together at times and 
we would do a, an experiment, a kind of experiment, where you uh, you send one person out of the room and the three inside decide to have that when that person comes back in to focus their attention on a particular object, not saying anything, and ask them to tell, say what the object was. So it was the beginning of a kind of telepathy experiment. And it was curiously interesting to me that when Jean would come into the room and sit down, and I would make contact with her, what I thought was her brain, and I would lift it up to the ceiling mentally, and every once in a while it was just like a, a thin fiber, and it would, it would break, it would seem to break, and things would jiggle, and I'd go back and start again, and lift it up, and then lift it over along the ceiling to above the object and bring it down to the object, and I'd say, that's it, what is it? And two times out of three, she named it. That's pretty good statistics. Now, is this as you, as an undergraduate, or no, have this, you this, now we, graduated? I, I, I had graduated, and, and uh, we were married uh, at that time. We were married in 52. In fact, our 58th anniversary comes up in about two and a half weeks. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. What about the conventional individual scientists that no doubt you're coming into contact with now? How, how, oh, how did they view that? Oh, they, they, I didn't really talk about it much. It just was an experiment, and I found it interesting. Um, I didn't make a big thing of it at all uh, in those days. I sort of always felt that this kind of stuff was natural in humans. Um, it wasn't until much later that I realized that it was anathema to orthodox science. But I reflect on it, and I reflect on the fact that, that uh, I mean, you know, as, a, as an undergraduate and in those in graduate school, three, four, five experiences with people who were making some kind of gizmo that, that they didn't understand, but it was supposedly doing wonderful things for healing people, and they wanted me to help understand it for them. Uh, I didn't get very far with that, um, and I wasn't, I was just, cu I was curious, that's all. Where, where are they sitting as human beings, and where are you sitting as a human being at this stage? There must be a huge divide. Oh, there's a huge divide, huge divide, yes. Uh, they, uh, basically, I suppose because of my background, I thought I was heading towards a scientist businessman kind of thing. Certainly that's what I thought I became when I was um, at Westinghouse Research Laboratories for nine years after I graduated with my PhD. This is where you were consulting? Uh, I was an advisory physicist. I was a full-time employee. Uh, I was a senior, called a senior physicist. Uh, why they gave me that grade, I don't know, other than the fact that Westinghouse was a company that if you knew what you wanted to do, you could manage from below, and I knew what I wanted to do, and so I managed from below. Now, did, did, did you already know by then that 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 you wished to manage was not exactly what they would have wished you to manage? No, I didn't know that. Uh, in fact, I the the big company in those days when I graduated with my PhD was General Electric. And I went and interviewed there, but uh, I was not so impressed. And the person that I was to be lined up with, who was turned out a very, very fine scientist, he wanted me to do something which I thought was small and tedious and careful. And that wasn't quite the way I saw myself doing things. I sort of, in my master's and PhD, created it. A sort of a new field, almost, in the area of crystallization. Um, and I had developed all kinds of ideas that I thought could be put to work at, at uh, General Electric. And I didn't get the scholarship I thought I was going to get to go to MIT. And basically, I gave a talk uh, at, a, at a conference uh, uh, in Chicago. And uh, on my research work, and a man from Westinghouse came up, and he was the assistant of Clarence Seener, who was a famous scientist at that time and the head of the lab. And uh, 
and asked if if I would come to visit them uh, for an interview at, at Westinghouse. And I said, sure. And when I went there, I spent a wonderful day. Uh, people asking me lots of questions and I interacting lots. And towards the end of the day, uh, I turned to uh, Clarence Ener and said, it's been a great day. I've had a good time. Uh, what are you going to offer me? I'd like to work for you. And so I got a good offer, and the next nine years were history. I built a group of, of young people to work with me, um, wrote about 60 scientific papers in those nine years, and then the company wanted me to go up the ladder in management. And I knew if I went any higher in they had a bigger group than I had. I could no longer do my own science. So I thought, I'd better look at this company very carefully. And so I thought about them, and I looked at them, and I thought, this is not a great company. Why am I still here? You exited that domain, and you moved into industry, however, as, as a consultant now. But well, but, I, was, <clears throat> but I, I put my grape on the vine for a year or so. I didn't like the companies I interviewed with. I thought they didn't understand people that they were managing and they didn't manage people properly. My view always was the people are everything to a company. If you build the people properly, they will create everything you need to be successful. I, I, I wonder if you said that to the leaders of corporations now, what their response would be, because I'm not sure that that philosophy is well used. Well, there are a lot more <coughs> companies that do use it now than in those days. But in any event, that opened my mind to universities. I didn't think of myself as a university professor because I, in fact, was not thrilled with some of the, the professors I had at, at the University of Toronto. But I got invited to, uh, to two universities, uh, one of which was Stanford. And uh, my wife had always wanted to live in California. So I thought, well, this sounds like a good opportunity. I'll probably only be there five years, and then I'll surely know what I want to do. And you were there for a long time. I love the scholarship. It turns out, I, I mean, I come in as a, as a full bull at 34 uh, with tenure. And thank God for tenure, because when I, my attention also moved in this other direction a decade later, um, they weren't thrilled about it. So... But in any event, that, that's, that's what opened the door to, to that next step, which was to be at Stanford. I'm interested in, here in your immersion. into Meditation. Did, well, and uh, there's so many other terms <laughs> yes. that I could apply to it. Yes. I was thinking, actually, when I was looking at this part of your life, that you have a conflict with the scientific community uh, to some degree maybe perhaps because they you are doing something that maybe doesn't m match their vision uh, or their mission but could it be considered actually looking back on it that indeed they did realize that you were some way departed from what they wanted you to do but actually they were happy for you to do it I think you're right on that score. There, there are two issues. One is, I've sort of, even in my orthodox science, been a bit ahead of my time, pushing a field, being uh, a world-class individual who pushes that particular envelope. And in my orthodox science, uh, I was that, and I had earned that. Um, and because I'd had the... Uh, experience with a group at, at Westinghouse who worked for me, when the head of the department at Stanford became ill in 65, they asked me to take over, which I did in early 66. And of course, you'd only been there, what, a, a year? A year, yes, yeah. right. Um, but I, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, when I first went there, I felt as if I was a racing bicycle uh, amongst a bunch of slow-moving carts. But, it, but is academia not that way anyway? It is, it is in part. Um, but it took 
it took time for that to that transformation to occur in me when I really loved the scholarship, uh, and I and I loved working. Uh, I taught only graduate students, but I loved working with with PhD students one on one. I preferred the one on one better more than the classroom um, because you're helping to unfold someone else. Um, what What are those dynamics that are evolving? in yourself that are empowering them at this stage we can use this word emotive mm-hmm. or we can uh, a lot of words that we can use there but clearly your interaction with yeah. students and uh, and academia staff is yeah. very different to anything else being applied yeah and and to uh, consulting as well basically when i was at westinghouse and i was invited to a division that had problems um, science of crystallization was my field, and I, I worked with folks on 100-ton ingots. I worked on people with dislocation-free silicon crystals to make integrated circuits. Um, I l- worked on uh, different kinds of materials for thermoelectricity, uh, wrote patents on uh, uh, desalination by the freezing process, etc., etc. Um but when they would come to me with a problem, and they'd been working on it for a long time, and they described it to me, I'd say, oh, that, the answer to that one is this. And I would tell them what, what uh, was the problem that they were facing and how to go about solving their problem. And I'm not sure they wanted to do that because this young whippersnapper would just get the credit for it. Um, I learned by the time I got to Stanford and, and was consulting with other companies, which I always thought was very important. Uh, and when I was faculty chair, I really encouraged everybody to do this, that they could. Um, I came to the realization that it was better to build the people and have the ideas manifest in the people and that it would be their credit and they could build their careers. And you could understand in that yes. how your your colleagues, your academic staff may not be terribly taken with that idea, that concept. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there, there were those features, but these were sort of unfolding in me at that time. Uh, and part of it, you know, it's connected with not just being department chair, but more with the meditation and the opening up of looking deeper within. You know, being department chair is each faculty member is like an instrument in a symphony, and they each think they're the conductor. Doesn't work. Well, does does that not define scientists in their boxes? Yes, it does, and, and it defines the hubris of those sorts of things, yes. Does this also, would you concur that scientists lack the emotional values that are needed to embrace each other? Perhaps they they may not have that oh. at home, <clears throat> but certainly at work it is seems to be a traditional sense of well-being yeah. or, or a standard that we're scientists. When we I, we shouldn't yeah. apply those. When I looked rules. at when I looked at this kind of thing, um, <clears throat> I I kind of realized that for most scientists, their sense of being was in their knowledge, and their power was in their knowledge. They didn't have much sense of being outside of that simply because they they did not have the capability of affecting others apart from themselves? Well, many did, okay? They they affected others, but uh, through their sense of humor or whatever, there was fellowship. Um, But as a sense of being really worthy, regardless of your scientific knowledge, of really being special, regardless of your scientific knowledge, that you as a being were wonderfully important to the universe 
regardless of your scientific knowledge. Those are add-ons. And so, and I've, I've seen that kind of thing play out a good bit. Um, and that's where the hubris comes from. Because certainly, I'm jumping ahead to the fact that when I became visible, uh, being involved in the early days of psychoenergetics, uh, their hubris would come out and they would make, we'll call it making fun of what I was trying to do uh, on the side. It was a, I should go back one step and say how this all happened, the transition from being department chair to going back to being just a normal orthodox science. When I received a Guggenheim Fellowship to go to Oxford uh, for a year with my family, I planned to write two books, or one big book, on the science of crystallization, which was my chosen field. And, of course, by that time, this was about, this was 79, 69, pardon me, 69. Um, I had met lots of psychics and done a lot of meditating and experienced lots and lots of phenomena. So I was well-versed in it. And I picked up this little book called Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain by Ostrander and Schroeder on the way to the airport and read it on the plane. I knew a lot about it, but I was amazed at the scope of the Soviet work in that area. And the question formed in my mind, how might the universe be constructed to allow this crazy seeming kind of stuff to naturally coexist with the orthodox science I was doing every day with my PhD students? And when I got to Oxford, we got to Oxford. I was introduced to the university and I had an office and all that sort of thing. We lived at West something. It'll come. I started writing the book. I probably got into it a couple of chapters, but I kept having this intrusion into my mind. How might the universe be constructed to allow this crazy-seeming kind of stuff to naturally coexist with orthodox science. How might that be? And I couldn't put it out of my mind. And eventually, after about two months, I said, to hell with it, I'm going to try to find out. My wife and I were daily meditators by that time, and so I, I took the question into meditation, and I would hold it like a brick in my hands during meditation, like a supplicant asking for enlightenment on this issue. And there would be some enlightenment in the sense of sense of understanding, intuitive tendrils of something. I talked to Jean about it after meditation. We did it for an hour each day. Uh, and then I would go upstairs to my study and I'd work all day to see what those tendrils of understanding violated in terms of experimental data that had been gathered in physics or any science avenue for that. And by the end of the day, I would usually have more questions. And so far, it hadn't violated anything. And then I went back into meditation the next day, holding the brick, which was now larger, more questions. And more light seemed to develop. I did this every day for six months, and at the end of six months, I had a model of how the universe might be constructed that would seamlessly join with orthodox science on one end and would explain this other class of phenomenon. And there is a, a lot of that is about your own personal being, clearly yes. your need to find a way to be able to service yes. conventional science as well as to be able to pursue yeah. this new paradigm. Yes, to be an integrator, if you like. And, and so in that, 
are you finding yourself ha having to balance the relationships that you have between yourself and those who work with you is there is there any fear involved in that not fear it's more uh, there was discomfort what happens in this process because I I, I basically uh, <coughs> coming to that conclusion I looked for someone I could pass this off to to do a real good scientific job of work. And I couldn't see anyone to pass it off to and decided I have to do it because I've always held to thine own self be true as the greatest dictum. And I was going to say that there are sacrifices there that you you are facing up to as, yes. uh, and it, in many ways it defines truly the her heroic spirit in, in, in taking those sacrifices. It Yes, I, I made certain mistakes. Um, I finally decided I had to do it. I had to keep my day job to feed my family. So I had to make time to do this other work. So the only way I could see it was to give up my post as department chair, give up my government committees, give up my professional committees, and then I have a block of time that I could put to work to do this. And I broke that time down into three boxes. One was the continued experiential development of self. That seemed to me to be crucial. The second was to keep theorizing how the, this universe might be constructed to allow this to happen. And the third third was to do experiments that pushed the envelope and kept the theory honest. Out of those, which would you say was the most challenging? Would it be the first because you have the normal insecurities that, that any human being does have that, yeah. that create those, those dark periods? No, I sort of knew, just like a, when a poem was ready to write itself, that that was right and that that needed to be continued because that was the basis of everything, going within, not going without. Um, so there is only one road and you have to take that road. That, that seemed to be it, yes. Uh, I thought at the time that if I continued to do world-class work in my orthodox science with my students and did this other on the side, that scientists would see the one and say, oh, I really respect that. I think I should look at the other. But but did they? No, they did not. They That really bothered them. Um, which, is they a, felt, which is an insecurity in itself. Yes, yes it is. I mean, they felt a little tainted by it. They would have preferred I be at some other university. They would go to a conference, and I could imagine people saying, what is this stuff that Tiller is into? Is he, has he gotten sick? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the hubris of people. Uh, and so I persevered. Now, the difficulty, the greatest difficulty I found with this was that because as I became known, I would get phone calls from people all around the world who were going through these internal transformations. And they thought they were going crazy, and their families and such thought they were going crazy. And so I would tell them that, no, this is normal evolution of people. Everyone's going to have to go through it. You're just one of the early ones, and these things will happen. And gave them some advice that, from my own experience, how to handle those you're, kinds of things. You're talking now about people in... In general, any area in any of area. life, exactly. not just the no. scientific community, no, not, not just not scientists, no, no scientists. So, so they, but nevertheless, they are seeing similarities, synergies between your endeavor, yes. your challenges. I was doing science and was providing data that they thought was interesting and is somehow related to their supposed pathology. Now, I would get off the telephone maybe after an hour-long conversation with someone in Europe. And in 30 minutes, 
I had to switch gears and give my normal orthodox lecture. I found that the most stretch, the greatest stretch. While on the telephone, of course, I was trying to heal these people, not consciously, but I was sending love to them. You are at that stage, therefore, in two completely opposed worlds. Yes. Would that be fair? Yes, that is fair. And it was a mindset. And so that tests your human spirit. That yes. has to test everything about you as much as it tests your ability to be able to counter any opposition from uh, scientists or anybody else in your life who yes. simply don't understand what you're doing. No, they don't. They have what's called the boggle. I call. I coined a word called the boggle effect. And the boggle effect is that when I would try to explain our experimental results to such a person, a scientist, after a little while, their eyes would get a little glassy and they would start to spin practically and they'd almost lose cognitive function. It was so... All the data was there, laid out, they saw it, but it violated their internal assumption. Would they ever turn around and say, Bill, um, are you sure you're doing the right thing Oh, sure. Here? Oh, sure. What would your response to that be? Well, let me give you a ex particular example. There was a, a student that was from electrical engineering that wanted to do a thesis in a particular area. Uh, I built a device that, that uh, was a gas discharge device that you could influence with your mind. To uh, And he wanted to do it for a thesis. So we went to the head of the electrical engineering department and asked if the universe would, university would allow him to do this uh, for a PhD thesis in electrical engineering. Um, and the, the man... Uh, said, oh, I'm sure you've made a mistake, and if I had only had five minutes of free time, I could look at it, and I could tell you where you went wrong. At that particular time, I'd spent two or three years thinking about this, and I knew it wasn't wrong. But that's... The issue is there, that... that and that's part of what you're struggling with when you're trying to talk about scientists too is that is that they the hubris gets developed from having a sense of power and knowledge um, which is outside the norm far beyond the norm and you think you're right and the other is wrong just as in the days of Galileo and the priests um, it's a very human condition it appears so in any event, it was events like that that made me think, okay, I'll just do the work and I'll try to publish it wherever I can and keep on keeping on and I'll do my orthodox science work with my students. Uh, anyone that's interested in asking me questions about this other, happy to talk to them about it um, and went down the road, helping them as I could to be better scientists, the, the most important time, the most joyful time in my life was when a student got to the place where he owned his own topic, really owned it in his marrow, knew more about it than I did, and could be himself, could, could really take charge of himself. So that was really your main goal. Yes, yeah. that was my main goal. As we close this first program in the series, hard to believe how this goes by so quickly, and next week, uh, the next program, I think that we'll be going uh, back to Stanford after your sabbatical in Oxford. In the last minute, what were the finest memories of Oxford of that period, maybe that you enjoyed with your wife and your colleagues? You know, I didn't spend a lot of time at Oxford. I did almost all my work at home. Uh, we interacted with a variety of people in this unfolding area that I call psychoenergetic science or psychoenergetics. And 
that was joyful. I struggled for quite a while, um, not really appreciating the way the British have a different solution to the equation than people from Canada or the United States. But I finally got it, that they had a different solution and it was every bit as good as ours. Just was different, that's all. And uh, I was glad that bit of information bubbled up into my consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of this first program in this series. I uh, do thank you for uh, sharing this information, and uh, I'm sure that we've got a couple more programs here to share, and I it's going to be, it would be. become ever more interesting. Uh, so, Professor Bill Tiller, for now, until our next program, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.